Well, good morning. Would you join me opening up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 2? Once we get going, that's where we'll be setting off from. But just a few things to hit on first. Um, this upcoming week, we are starting our second term of grace classes that are being held on Zoom. You know, as we looked at as a ministry team into this fall, how are we going to continue to make disciples in, in these kind of unique, strange days? What other things are we going to be creative with? And knowing that we can't do our uh, traditional Sunday classes that we do on Sunday mornings, typically in the fall and winter and spring, these kind of six-week semesters. So we did two terms on Zoom. We just finished our first term uh, a couple weeks ago, and then we'll be starting our second term. And they've just really been, uh, we've been really encouraged by how fruitful and edifying that first term was. Um, particularly, uh, you know, we did a few classes like Parenting in the Pandemic. We did one on uh, a Bible study in the book of Acts. And then we did one on race and racial reconciliation. And I hope we'll have uh, in the next couple of weeks just, a, uh, just something to share with the whole church of what really came out of that class and something that we were really encouraged by. And in this next term, we're going to have three classes again. Uh, two start this week. Uh, first, on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock will be a class called Foundations. And this class is really just an opportunity to understand the foundations of the faith. And so it's for people who maybe um, are just kind of wrestling through Christian truth or new to the faith or just uh, exploring Christianity. But it also is for uh, longtime mature believers who just want a little bit of a vocabulary of how to help uh, encourage others in the foundations of the faith. What, what is the process we can walk through in discipling others in that way? So um, anybody can take that. Um, and then on Wednesday night uh, will be a Bible study going through the book of Galatians. Uh, that'll be Wednesdays at 8 p.m. And then third, the third class will start next week. And it's a class called Church and Politics. And for those who are thinking, man, you're crazy, <laughs> you might not be wrong, but here is our intent in this, is that we believe as a church, we, don't, we want to avoid two extremes. We want to avoid the extreme of just saying, okay, as a church, we just have to not say anything at all, bury our head in the sand, um, act like there's not uh, a big political climate happening around us. Hopefully, we surface in November and December and just hang on and everything's okay. But also, we want to avoid the, uh, the, 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 the kind of temptation to say, okay, we want to be all in on this. We want to choose a candidate. We want to choose a platform. We want to broadcast that and align ourselves with one ideology in this country, and we want to avoid that. So what's the best way that Christians and churches can engage in the political realm that is faithful but makes no mistake that our allegiance is to King Jesus alone? So one quote from one of the books that we'll be kind of um, using in that class is this. I'll just share this. Um, it says, It's my sense that one of Satan's greatest victories in contemporary America has been to divide Christians along partisan lines. And so that class will be starting next week. That'll be Tuesdays at 8 p.m. So you can sign up and register for any of those classes on our Grace Church website. There's an events tab that will bring you to the website where we host all our registrations. I uh, would encourage you to do that heading into this week, to choose one of those over the next six weeks to, um, to engage with us on. Um, and then also, last week, I, uh, I didn't lie to you, but I unfortunately misled you. I said that we're, we announced a, a hiring of an associate pastor. That is still true. I told you that we were going to announce him to you in the next couple of days. That was not true. Um, and, and the reason being is that we wanted to ensure uh, that he uh, notifies the congregation of the church he's leaving before we announce the congregation that he is coming. And so even if there's just a slight chance that if we announced it before they did, that it could 
somehow trickle away through the Christian network that uh, we just didn't want to put them in that position. And so uh, their church will be learning that um, this weekend, and then we will be able to share that with you on Tuesday. So I'll, I'll commit to an, even a day to you this week. And uh, Tuesday morning, check your email. There'll be a video going out that um, introduces him to the church. He'll be starting on December 1st. Uh, we're still very uh, excited about that. And then um, on the theme of staff, um, this morning, our, we had a family worship service on the lawn like we've been doing since end of July um, that Megan and Steve have really been overseeing, doing a great job. That's always been our largest service. Obviously, with the amount of families of young children we have at Grace, and they have just done, I mean, just really, it's been edifying to see uh, whole families go through the Gospel Project curriculum together. The Gospel Project is what the kids do in kids' worship downstairs, K through fifth grade. Um, and, and to be able to now see families be able to see, uh, hear those lessons together, have family discussion, worship, see the gospel demonstrated in different activities has really just been unbelievable. Megan has poured herself out for that, and it's been great. Um, and starting tomorrow, Megan is going to be taking a six-week leave. And the reason is to uh, really just be able to focus on the home front, a lot of the new normals that their family is kind of going through uh, with uh, a dual working home, but also having a new arrangement, homeschool for the kids. It just, she just needs some time to just really focus there, get her uh, kind of all those kind of things in order. And so myself and the board, we're so happy and glad to support her in this and that her should be taking uh, that six-week leave starting tomorrow. So here's what kind of kids ministry is going to look like for the next six weeks. Because if you know anything about Megan, she's not just leaving you for six weeks. You're going to see plenty of her. Uh, they were binge filming yesterday in the church, kind of this videos that are going to be rolling out over the course of her leave. And then uh, that, so midweek, we're going to be basically releasing a video for families um, that they have filmed beforehand that aligns with that Gospel Project curriculum. And then starting next Sunday... Uh, October 18th, there will start to be a kids element in the indoor service. So a Gospel Project video will be shown. We'll have kids bulletins for, um, for any elementary age kids, really kindergarten through fifth grade or even um, older preschooler children. Um, so we would encourage you, families at home who are watching the live stream, to encourage you to begin to register for the indoor service because there will be a kids element to this as well. Um, and we have just been encouraged over the last month uh, of kind of our test run of safely having these indoor services with all our protocols in place. And so if you are on the live stream and watching with your family, just know that starting next week, we'd encourage you guys to start joining us as we uh, continue to constantly adapt and change and tweak and think about different methods that we can do in these times as a church to keep the bullseye vision and mission that will never change. And that is to make disciples not only of one another, but of our children, teaching them in the way of Jesus Christ, which will now segue us into our passage and into our sermon this morning in 1 John chapter 2. There's a Greek philosopher named Plato. You've all heard of Plato. He lived 400 years before Jesus was born in the city of Athens. He was kind of uh, one of the kind of the trilogy of Western philosophy. You had Socrates who taught Plato and Plato who taught Aristotle, kind of shaping what we now know as modern kind of westernized philosophy. One of Plato's famous lines, quote, the greater part of instruction is being reminded of things you already know. Meaning simply this. 
the majority of growing, of maturing, of learning is being reminded of the things you've already been taught. We learn things for the first time once. And then from there, we need a lifetime of being reminded of what we've already learned. I mean, I, you, you can think about any context and how true this is. I think about parenting young children. It's 5% teaching new things. It's 95% reminding them of the things they've already been taught. And, and you could say the same for teachers or for football coaches or fitness instructors or voice coaches. And on and on we go. Growth in anything including spiritual growth and maturity, is primarily fresh reminders of old truth. So as we continue this series in the book of 1 John, this morning, John's going to give the church a new commandment. But it's really a reminder of an old commandment, freshly applied. The command... Love one another. How many sermons do you think you've heard on that? Love one another. How many Bible studies have you done that included the call to love one another? How many bedtime devotionals? How many Sunday school classes? How many conversations? So church, my prayer is that we, this morning, in hearing something of old, will be reminded anew in such a way that brings glory to God good to this world, and joy to your soul. My question is, are you open to that? Are you open to an old command being freshly given this morning? I hope so, because in this section of 1 John, the elder apostle is administering two tests of salvation, two tests to the church in hopes of giving them assurance in the faith. Right? How do I know I am saved? It's a question we've all asked. It's a question we are asked by others. And so John's giving here two tests. We we, we covered the first one last week in verses 1 through 3. It was the test of obedience. And now we're going to see the second one. It's going to be the test of love. So three reminders in total this morning in our passage. God's love in you. Number two, God's love through you. Number three, God's love over you. So that's where we're going so do you join me as we now read 1 John chapter 2? We're going to start with just verses 7 and 8. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. Number one, God's love in you. So again, last week when John said that here's how we can know that we know God. If we keep his commandments. And by commandments, he built upon Jesus' claim that actually Trish also just prayed about. That all the commandments in the Bible rest upon the foundational greatest commandment. Love God with all all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that test of obedience then revealed whether or not we truly love God with all that we are, because genuine obedience begins with desire. Ultimately, we're all going to do what we want to do in life. We could fake it for a little while here and there, but in the long run, we're all going to do what we want to do. 
And what we want to do is going to flow from what we love most. And so now as he transitions to the test of love in verses 7 and 8, he's referring now to the love for neighbor. Love for neighbor with enhanced focus on a love for our brother, meaning our fellow believers. So where am I getting that? Because John actually won't mention the word love until verse 10. But I think he's implying it beginning in verse 7 when he said, Church, I'm not writing you something new. I'm writing you something old, something you've had from the beginning. What's he referring to there? Reminder that this John also is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. And John was the only one of the gospel authors to provide the extensive kind of final teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples in the upper room during the Last Supper before getting arrested later that night. And in John 13, 34 and 35, it says this, listen, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So John is basically playing off Jesus' own words that even when Jesus said that, it wasn't actually new for his disciples. Jesus actually wasn't giving a new command because the, the call to love God and love neighbor came and was rooted in the Old Testament. First in Deuteronomy and then in Leviticus. So this is an old command, but also a new command that Jesus is giving. It's, it's, it's both. How can it be both? Here's why. It's a new reminder of an old instruction because we need to be reminded even more than we need to learn new things. It's what we constantly need. Christian growth and teaching is 95% old truth that you already know that is now freshly spoken to you. Uh, I mentioned that this upcoming week, it's the start of our second term of Grace classes. Um, and in that first term, as I said, there was one class called Parenting in a Pandemic. And it was a class that I wasn't teaching. It was Christy and Dan Scarpa leading the class. So Rochelle and I were able to take a class together at Grace Church for the first time since I've been on staff. I was like, really, you just click the Zoom link and just sit on your couch and listen? Like, this is amazing. Why doesn't everybody do this? But we were in this class called Parenting in a Pandemic. And how Christy went about teaching it was that she took a single verse for each week. It was one verse for each week. Understanding that verse and then applying it to parenting. Here's the thing about that class. It was simple. There was nothing new I learned for the first time in that class. And then, yet, hear me, it was incredibly edifying. Unbelievably edifying. It was a reminder that God sustains his people and grows us even in the midst of stressful times, not by primarily giving us insight to new knowledge, although that might happen sometimes, but by mostly just hearing old truth freshly applied, by being reminded, by, by the words of God being spoken to us in the context of community. So, so never underestimate a foundational truth being spoken to you again especially in the context of a Christian walk. 
even if you think about just our week-by-week preaching ministry, you think about how many sermons you've heard. A sermon is not only a good sermon if you go and learn something new. The vast majority of the time, it's going to be you hearing, understanding, and applying ancient truth that you've heard before that now is going to fall afresh. Because God's word never changes, but we do. And we never come to the word of God or coming to hear a sermon the same way we were last week. Think about the best sermon you've ever heard. The best sermon you've ever heard is probably not the best because you learned something new that day. But that the Holy Spirit used God's word in a supernatural way to engage your mind and stir your heart in such a way that you wanted to explode. It's not necessarily that the sermon was great or even the preacher was great, but the timing of that word in your life at that moment changed everything. So the command to love one another has always been true for the people of God. But Jesus said, and now John repeats, it is new in the sense that Jesus is the new living example of this old command. Jesus is what was new for the disciples, not the command. And what was, John says, it was true in him and in you. God's love in you. Jesus was a new example of an ancient truth that those in the church would benefit from in such a way that um, saints in the Old Testament will never have benefited from. That we are in an advantageous situation on this side of the cross because we have Jesus. We have the example of Jesus. Jesus, who loved everyone that everybody else deemed unlovable. Jesus, who loved his own disciples to the end despite their own shortcomings, their own pride, their own confusion. Jesus, who even in his final moments on the cross, loved those who were crucifying him enough to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus loved in such a way that it was noticeable, which is why Jesus would say to his his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. That's a big statement, right? What, what, what's the one thing Jesus says to his disciples? He says, all people who look at you are going to know if you're mine. How? If we have the right doctrine? If we know all the answers? If we act better than everyone else? No. If you have love for one another. This love by the example of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is in you who believe. So it's not just a commandment. It's a commandment that comes with the power and ability to carry it out. This is a test where you get the answer key. Do you believe you're capable of loving in this way? Not perfectly but that you're capable of loving in this way. Not just believing in love, but actually loving others. Not because of you, but because of the love of Christ in you. That's number one. Number two, let's keep reading. We're going to read again the the second half of verse 8 again, up through 11. 
The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Number two, God's love through you. Start with God's love in you. Now, number two, God's love through you. The word love occurs 24 times in just 105 verses in 1 John. It's the literal heartbeat word of this letter. A love that flows from God to exist in us, and then that love working through us to others. And so here's what John is saying. The health of any church is measured in the degrees of love. Many of you know that the Greek language uses four different words for the word love, as opposed to our single word for word love. So we say, I love everything, right? And we just use that word over and over again. So when we actually talk about the real kind of love that God's talking about, we kind of tend to water it down because we use the word love for everything. But in the Greek, there was four words, and the word for unconditional love was agape, the kind of love that God has for his people kind of love that Christ has for his church. It's the love that sacrifices. It's the love that chooses. It's the love that pursues. You want to guess which word for love God, John, uses all throughout this letter when talking about our love for one another? Agape. 20th century pastor and commentator John Stott says that 1 John displays love as the circulatory system of the church. Are you familiar with your circulatory system? Do you know what it's doing right now in your body? It's a system of arteries and veins that connects blood vessels from your heart to every part of your body. It's the system that is the highway in which nutrients and oxygen flows to the trillions of cells that you currently have. Arteries carry blood away from the heart. Veins carry blood back to the heart. And when the circulatory system is working as it should, the body is healthy. But when arteries get clogged, blood can't pass through, your body's in danger. And so it is with love in the church. When Christians love as we should, our body is healthy. When we don't love, when things start to get jammed up and clogged and love can't pass through from brother to brother to brother to sister to sister to sister in the church, we are all in danger. Which is why Jesus, in his letter to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, remember what he said to the church of Ephesus? He said, I know you have good doctrine. I know you do a good job of defending against false teachers. You get to a point in this letter, you're like, I want to be part of that church. They know their stuff. They can defend it well. They are well trained. But then Jesus says, but this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And he said, if you don't repent... I will remove your lampstand from its place. Your light will no longer shine if you lose your love. 
It's an interesting connection between Jesus' words and, then, and, and, and that warning and then John's use of light and darkness to illustrate this point in this passage. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. You see what John's saying? He's saying light and darkness, they can't coexist. They are constantly at odds with one another. In fact, the definition of darkness is what? The absence of light. And this is the word picture John gives for love and hate. That hate is the absence of love. They are at constant odds with one another. And you cannot claim to be a Christian no matter how much you know, no matter how much you can defend, no matter how fast you do the Bible sword drill, if you hate your brother, hate in your heart towards a brother or sister in Christ, John's saying it's a contradiction. You failed the test. Love for fellow believers is the evidence of salvation. And, and so there is a difference between hating actions, especially sinful actions that people commit, and actually hating people. Can I say that again? There's a difference between hating the actions of somebody and actually hating the person. Because if you hate the person, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in his eyes, hate is the same as killing. Hate is the same as murder. You are killing them in your heart. Which is a tough passage for us. Because we got to do some work with that, don't we? We need to untangle the biblical form of love for others from the world's definition of love that we're just so easily influenced by. Because agape love includes feelings and emotions. God's created us with emotions. But it's not primarily steered by feelings. Whereas the world's version of love is primarily steered by feelings. If you feel in love, then you're in love. And if the feeling of love is no longer there, then you must just be done. That's the world's definition of love. But agape is a decision. It's not the feeling like the wind, like it just came and it went, and I don't know where it went, but it's gone. Agape is a decision to love others, even when that love is not being reciprocated. Agape love is not conditional. It's not based on conditions to make it right. So Christians, we never fall out of love with others. That's passive language that we use to let ourselves off the hook. If we don't love someone, particularly a brother or sister in the church, that doesn't mean love left us. It means we left love. And we chose that. And we walked away. And then we become a walking contradiction. Now, does love for one another mean that you always have to always like everybody at all times? Does it mean that you perfectly need to get along with all people at all times? Does it mean that there will never be a clash of personality or a struggle or a tension? Of course not. We're all sinners. People will sin against us. The more we're around them, we'll sin against them. The closer you get to people in the church, the more dangerous it is because the more we see of one another, and unfortunately, we're all sinners. 
But when we love one another, it doesn't mean there'll never be tension or never a clash or never struggle. But it means, as the Bible says, love will cover a multitude of sins. It doesn't highlight them. It doesn't hold a grudge because of them. And so there's a word for us here. To be careful that you don't allow another's sin to build anger and resentment in your heart. Because in time, that will expose more about you than it will for them. And it's why forgiveness is so vital in Christian relationships. Because without it, you choose to not love others as you can and should. And we should be also, as Christians, willing to confess against others when we sin against them. But here's the thing. Here's the hardest part. Our forgiveness of them is not contingent on them apologizing to us. Because in the long run, not forgiving will not harm them, it will harm you. So there's an individual application to this, but hear me now, church, there is a cultural moment that we are in where there is an extreme lack of love for others in our world. Like, hate is the word of the day today. Outrage, anger, bitterness. And darkness reigns all around us. And what is devastating are the times when Christians and the church perpetuate the hate and don't stand against it. When Christians act like the world, we fold into the darkness instead of shining the light against it and upon it. Martin Luther King famously said in 1967, one year, mind you, before he was assassinated, I think he might have had 1 John in mind when he said this, quote, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Let me say this. Listen close. The next four weeks in our country is going to expose what is really true about the church, one way or another. The next four weeks, Grace Church, will expose us. And this test of love is coming for us. And our call to love our neighbor in the world, and especially our call to love one another in the church is not contingent on anything that's going to happen in the next four weeks. It is commanded, and our ability to show that love will be the evidence of whether we are walking in the light or stumbling in the dark. Churches are literally splitting and shutting down on all kinds of disagreements. Do you know what one of the primary disagreements that are splitting churches right now? Mask policies. All throughout our country. And it's the political ideologies underneath those mask discrepancies that is driving it all. 
And that's just one example. We can just go on and on of the things that are just splitting, things that have nothing to do with Christ, nothing to do with the atonement, nothing to do with theology or doctrine, but just ideology. And so I think Christians should be engaged, we should be informed, we should be thoughtful citizens who play a part in the political process. I think you should all vote, either on November 3rd or leading up to then. But listen very closely. I care far less about who you vote for leading up to November 3rd than I care about how you'll choose to love those who disagree with you on November 4th. And the test of love for our church is a test we're all about to take. Everybody will be accountable to this. None of us are going to skip it. And I have been largely encouraged by our church's approach and discourse with one another. I mean, I see all that's happening in churches, and I'm looking at grace. I'm like, all right, I'm just waiting. Like, when's this coming for us? And, and by God's grace, I think God has very much sustained. I think he's exposed health in our church. But it's not to say that we should just get cocky about ourselves, because here's the thing. Here's the thing about Grace Church. When it comes to political topics, there is room for different views within this church. And if you don't agree with that statement, it's possible that politics is an idol, not a conviction for you. I'm not against convictions. I'm not against strong stances. I'm not against um, really being outspoken in a certain way or on a certain issue or for a certain election. But if you don't agree that there's room for disagreement within your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, then politics is probably an idol, not a conviction. And so here's a question I just ask of myself and I ask of you over the next four weeks. Before you speak, before you type, before you post, can you ask this with me? If Jesus said, the world will know that I am his disciple by my love for others, What's this about to tell them? What will your words, actions, comments, and posts say about Jesus Christ? Will it bring him glory? And if this feels impossible at times, that's because in our own strength, it is. But even in the darkest part of the night, we know that dawn is coming. And the love of Christ in us is the love that can and will shine through us if we faithfully wait on him. There's a woman, Hannah Anderson. She's a Christian author and just a great follow on Twitter, if you're on Twitter. She wrote this. This is what you do in winter. You plan for spring. This is what you do when the earth lies dark. You plan for dawn. This is what you do when death seems to reign. You plan for resurrection. Church, we see dimly now, but as John said, the light is already shining. And for now, the light of Christ shines through this, his church. In this era of redemptive history, his light shines through his church. Jesus said, we are the hope of the world. We are the city on the hill. That Jesus will work in us and through us until he returns. And that light will fight back the darkness all around us. Will we step into that? All right, let's finish our passage this morning. 
We're going to finish with verses 12 through 14. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Third and final point this morning. God's love over you. We've seen God's love in you, God's love through you. Now, God's love over you. I said at the beginning of last week that these two sermons were written to provide assurance. That test of faith should be given us assurance that we know him. We've saw the test of obedience, now the test of love. And those are important and those are necessary. But I'm so grateful for John because he closes this section on assurance, not with a focus of our love for God, but on his love for us. Assurance includes our obedience and it includes our love for others but the foundational assurance that you should have when you ask the question am i saved is remembering his love for you how do i know i'm saved because he said so because we are who he says we are And that's what John does here. After writing about evidence of our love for God, he now closes with the evidence of God's love for us. And he does so in the form of a poem. Doesn't that just say something in of itself? This man is 80-something. He's an elder elder statesman. John the Apostle, a man, again, in his 80s, who has seen and experienced more hardship, more suffering than anyone he is writing to. And he breaks out in a poem in the middle of his letter. And at first glance, he seems to address three different groups of people in the church. Little children, fathers, and young men. The simplest way to interpret this has been that these names represent the three groups of people. The children in the church, the adolescents in the church, and to the adults. Or that they're names for spiritual maturity. Little children being new believers, young men being growing believers, and fathers being mature believers. But I favor the interpretation that says that the phrase little children refers to the entire church because he's already used that title in the book of 1 John, speaking to the entire church. So to John, the elder statesman, little children means everyone he's writing to. It's a term of endearment, not a condescending one. And then he separates the church into two groups represented by fathers and young men to distinguish between long-term believers and short-term believers in the church. But either way, you think is the best interpretation. The promises spoken over them is what is most important. And it's true, all three promises that he gives. And they're all timely words that will hit people differently based on their season of life. But he gives three promises. First, an assurance of forgiveness. That for all the discussion of sin we've had in First John over the last three weeks, all that he has spoken thus far, all the sin of God's children are forgiven. Not for their sake, but for the sake of his holy name. And then second, the assurance of knowledge. Not just head knowledge, but the knowledge of salvation that mature believers experience and the joy that comes with the assurance over the long term that they are in him and he is in them. 
Charles Spurgeon spoke of a time when he, as a young preacher, gave a sermon on forgiveness, and his grandfather was sitting in the service. And so Spurgeon asked his grandfather if he would come close the service in prayer. And his elderly grandfather walked up to the pulpit, put his hand on his grandson's shoulder and said, Charles can tell you about it, but I have lived it. Mature believers don't just know forgiveness, they've lived it. And then third, the assurance of victory that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, the same power that rose him from the grave, lives in the heart of believers by the presence of his Holy Spirit, and that power makes you an overcomer. So as we close this morning, here's the first couple of chapters in 1 John in a nutshell. You ready? The enemy says you're bad in order to heap shame on you. The world says you're good in order to stoke pride in you. But the triune God says you're loved in order to grant assurance in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it, even where it can be difficult to read at times, that it ultimately leads to the glory of your name. It ultimately leads to the love that you have for your people, a love that was so significant that he sent Jesus Christ to die on our behalf and to be raised from the grave to declare victory over the sin that binds us, Lord. And so I pray that this morning it truly would become clear and evident to us, even as we now stand to sing and prepare for communion, that it is in Christ alone that we find our assurance. Father, let that run in us and through us and over us this morning. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.